um, their familial background, their economic status, education background, things of that nature, zip code born into. Um, so that's why I think equity is a better way to look at making the world a better place because then it takes into context the backgrounds in which people come from. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. With me is Joshua Agundu. He is the uh, CEO of Stealth Startup. He's also uh, had a lot of experience with product management and I believe is also an angel investor. So many different hats uh, he's he's worn. I believe you also work with TikTok. So I think there's a lot of things. Yeah, to, I was at TikTok, yeah. Yeah, to explore there. Um, was from the Midwest, moved his way out, uh, and is now finding himself as a, as a, as a Cali boy in LA. Yeah. So, uh, which has been part of his, um, that that's helped build his network. And we're going to talk about that and everything he's done there and hopefully gain some type of advice about what to do, what, what not to do and, uh, how we can learn as founders and investors in the space. How you doing yeah. today, man? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on the show. Always love to to chat with folks uh, all across, you know, especially from the Midwest, as me being from Michigan, always good to connect with other folks who have Midwest roots in the in the ecosystem. Absolutely. Well, if you can, everybody on this show, please subscribe, subscribe to us on YouTube, hit that like button um, and then also hit that subscribe button. You can also, of course, find us on Disruption Now. Um, we love to have conversations that are disruptive, that disrupt common narratives and constructs. So I want you to feel comfortable to be as controversial. You usually are on uh, on Twitter. So I know you're not going to have any problem with us, man. No, exactly. All right. So look, let, let, let's get right to it. So you uh, you you have this statement on LinkedIn, and I want to I want to talk about this statement and what it means to you and why you said it. You yeah. said, "I am for equity because equity starts with everyone." Why is that statement important for you to put out? And what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think it's the reason I say equity. The reason I use the word equity as often as I do, because people think that like, oh, it's like make everything equal, like equality, like 50-50. You get this chance. You get this chance. The thing about equity is that everybody doesn't start from the same place. Yes. Um, so to make things um, more um, even across the board, you have to think about the advantages and disadvantages that people um, come from, whether it's like um, their familial background, their economic status, education background, things of that nature, zip code born into. Um, so that's why I think equity is a better way to look at making the world a better place, because then it takes into context the backgrounds in which people come from. Yes. But something that um, I believe one thing that sparked our conversation and kind of got us uh, talking on there on, on Twitter, uh, you made a reference and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but yeah. you made a reference that people often like to um, uh, romanticize that they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. They came from this struggling, hard background uh, and, and, and people seem to be romanticized with that. Like I've seen that, but talk about why it, you, you you see that as an issue. I know I do. And yeah. how should we think about approaching that in terms of a, a moment of self-awareness for the ecosystem? Yeah, the reason, the first reason that I uh, see it as an issue, because it usually comes from those who did not have to grow up in economic insecurity. Um, it comes from those who came from either middle or upper middle, mainly upper middle, especially in the tech ecosystem yeah. uh, backgrounds. And they're like, you know, oh, you know, grit, hustle, 
you know, uh, coming from nothing, things of that nature. Um, and I think they romanticize it because they think, oh, I missed out on something. I could have had more, more of that hustle, more of that grit. Like, you know, I like they like they're jealous of poverty or something. Yeah. Which is like always. A, <laughs> There's nothing to be jealous about. Very strange. Exactly. It's nothing to be jealous about. <laughs> Not so a thing. it's like it's it was it's always weird for me when those who didn't experience it romanticize it because those who experience it do not romanticize it. They talk about the very real things that are when you grow up in economic insecurity or unstable environments, um, that does a lot of damage and it does more damage than it does good. And I know that folks in, in our ecosystem like to romanticize hustling and all that kind of stuff, hustling to get a like a an A in your AP world class is fundamentally different than having to hustle to put food on the That's table exactly so you right. can eat. Um, and I think they look to equate those two hustles, but you can't equate the two hustles because they're one is uh, an achievement in an accelerated course, and one is literally just doing what you need to do to survive, right. um, which also can take away the energy you might have even be able to put into getting a good yep. grade in that class. Yeah, I, I really think people uh have struggle with this because they struggle with uh things being given to them and they feel like they'll be looked down upon this is my perspective of the privilege they have and this is not a singular privilege i'm talking about because i believe privilege lives on a spectrum right Agreed. there are multiple ways to have privilege 100 right and that's what this conversation gets so uh divisive when I don't think it has to be if people look at it, but I understand why it does become that because the self-identity of a person, people like to believe that they've done everything without any help because they romanticize with that. And that I think is utter bullshit, right? Cause right. we don't, Agreed. we don't do anything <laughs> by ourselves. Uh, and, and often it's the system. Yes. You have to work. Like I'm not divorcing work from it, but that to me is like common sense. It's like, okay, yeah, of course you have to work. Like and, and and I think people overemphasize how hard they worked to romanticize about where they came from because they don't like seeing themselves as privileged. But I heard this and um, uh, Arlen Arlen um, I forgot Arlen's last name Arlen Hamilton. Yes, thank you. So I don't know why I forgot that, but she was on my show discussing uh, privilege and she she really stated it the best I've heard it stated. She said privilege is just something you have; it's not a bad thing, right? It's only bad if you lack self-awareness or you abuse it, which is the mm. problem, right? Because people in this space are like, oh, I got here. I went to Stanford. Why can't you all do that? And uh, I found a way to make it. And they really under undervalue the ecosystem that they grew up in, the network that they had around them. So I, I believe it goes to that. I agree with that. And I think that's a really good way to look at, at privilege. And I know people like, for some reason, don't, uh like to know that they were uh given certain legs up that those did not have because like like you said people uh, like to assume that it diminishes the work that they put in but i always believe that um uh opportunities and the way that people like what success is it's based off like the privileges you were born into uh the systems that you were born into uh, as well as the personal choices that you made. And depending on who you are and what you're doing, all three of those can be weighted differently. Like, you know, on, um, you know, with Guy Ross, he always asks people, is it luck or was it hard work that helped you get to where you're, you're at? And I'm always most into folks that realize that um, luck and privilege do have a Absolutely. material impact to who gets to even 
work in this ecosystem in the first place. Absolutely. And, and, and privilege more than anything else. Because yep. you can because you can persist long enough if you have support. Uh, I, I can think of so many examples, but uh, let's take Amazon, right? <laughs> Jeff Bezos didn't come from a nothing background. No. Neither did Bill Gates. Neither did Steve Jobs. Nope. All those folks <laughs> had lots of lots of support. They got early access to the knowledge. And and you speak to this often because we have a lot of people that are, are trying to downplay college. Like, well, look, all these founders didn't go to college. Like, you're not Steve Jobs. You're not Bill Gates. If you have, maybe if you were, if you, if, if, if right now your parents gave you access to advanced AI knowledge 10 years ago, you probably do not need to go to college. Right. right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unless you're that person, you do need to go to that. Right. So I do think there, there, there is some perspective there. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the the thing about downplaying college to me is specifically in the tech ecosystem is the anti-institution mantra that people tend to have now. A lot of tech folks back then, uh, you know, when folks were coming up, they're like, oh, you know, we're the outsiders. We're like, you know, anti this, anti that. But when you look at the backgrounds of VC backed founders, operators at hyper growth companies, operators at um, larger, larger venture firms, as well as big tech. You know, they all have college backgrounds. And if they didn't go to one of the most elite college, like the elite colleges, the thing that people don't notice is that a lot of them went to very expensive private schools for high school. So like, hey, yeah, I didn't. Oh, I skipped college. But you also went to a high school that cost thirty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it's that it's the nuances and the pattern matching that I personally seen, which is why I'm like, yes, higher education is is if higher education didn't matter, then you wouldn't see venture firms um, as well as founders and intros even being made saying, oh, they studied here. They did this, giving them some type of uh, credibility um, during an yep. introduction or during a conversation. So as, as much as people like to, especially in tech, like to downplay, like, why go to college? Uh, why, why would I, you know, uh, uh, go to uh, go to college to to get a degree and then and then get in the ecosystem? If you really pay attention, that whole dropout narrative is actually not as apparent as people want it to be, even in engineering. Because specifically, people talk about it from the lens of founding a company or working in engineering. If people did not know this, there's a lot more functions that go into running companies than being an engineer or founding a company or like being a founder and non-VC backed because VC backed founders usually have pedigree on the education and academic education and professional or one of the two. So that's kind of my thing with the the college thing in tech is just that they're anti-establishment and they're usually they're using the anti-establishment political belief they have. Um, to push down and uh, push away the importance of institutions, although these are the same people who are sending those kids, their kids to these institutions. Yeah, I actually think it's a more it's 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 more cynical for some because I also think they're pushing a a narrative to people to make them feel as if you know they can be like them if they embrace these this kind of mentality and it, and it and it kind of it it pushes to me part of a political agenda what people want or a rhetoric. Uh, for people to believe that, you know, I too can do this. Uh, I can be just like that person and not being realistic about what, how that person actually uh, obtained that. I'm a, I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a great believer in, uh, you know, anything's possible yes. and overcoming barriers. I have that belief fundamentally. And while at the same time, I have the belief that 
a lot of people that are pushing the narratives of what they did, they're not being honest. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> they're not telling you their their familial background. They're not telling you their household income. They're not giving you the context of who they knew. Like, you know, we talk about the Collison twins, you know, Paul Graham from YC knew them when they were teenagers. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and they both went to to to, to great schools and things of that nature. I think, I think they both jumped out of Harvard and MIT, but people focus on that versus like, how did Paul Graham know some teenagers in Scotland? How did, yep. how, what networks were these kids in? So it's like, it's, it's a, I wish people were more transparent about their backgrounds, but I think, like you said earlier, the more transparent people are about their privileges, the more they feel like that will take away from the way people view their work. Yep, I agree. But I, look, I'm a person that like, I didn't grow up rich, but I, I had no poverty, zero. So we were Same. middle class, moving up middle class later. And I, I I ran for office for a brief stint. And I remember uh, some people tried to, 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 to kind of use that against me. And the thing is, I'm like, I don't know. I thought as black people, it's better our goal was to not just focus on being in poverty, but to get out yes. and, not to, and not to not to not to look down upon people that didn't have to go through poverty because my parents both got opportunity. I'm not saying they were better than anybody else, but they got opportunity, worked hard and were able to position, uh, you know, people after them, me and, and, and their kids to be better off. Like we have to get out of that. Like we have to get out of that mentality. And I think it is prevalent. Do you see that? And how do you challenge it if you do? Yeah, I think for me, I think that goes into like, you know, the the age old like um, how black are you and people attributing too much of blackness to uh, vulnerability, economic insecurity, instability and having to get it by any means necessary. You know, uh, it would be greater. It would be great if people started like leaving that and not assuming that you are less or more part of the community based on how much economic insecurity or instability did you experience growing up or in your early adulthood. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. But let's let, let, let's let, let's go down this road and challenge this a little bit. Right. So it, it, we talked about privilege being on a spectrum. And if I had yeah. to say, uh, if you are a VC funded, you tend to be it's not just that you had a great idea. It's yeah. not that it's not just it's it's rarely just it's rarely that actually. Uh, it's usually that you had a good network and you were in a system uh, that gave you the opportunity to get this, I believe, hard, you know, hard stop. What advice do you give people that maybe, you know, when you add the privilege to a spectrum, you know, obviously if, if people, even if you're black, you go to one of those rich high schools and you go and you uh, go to Stanford, you're probably going to be connected in that system. But let's yeah. say you're in the Midwest Let's say you went to a good school, you know, you went to Michigan State, I went to University of Cincinnati, and you're starting, you're starting a business. What advice do you give people if they don't have the, we'll say the VC infrastructure kind of going for them? How should they go about uh, this, this, this uh, journey that is entrepreneurship? Uh, is the goal to uh, eventually raise or does that, is that not the, what's the, what's the, the end I mean, goal that's, that's, that, 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 that's actually a fair question. So you want to build a scalable business that is, is eventually venture backable. What, what, like what advice would you give folks? Not just to start a business, nothing wrong with that's a good thing too. like start a business, figure out a way to make profit, but building a scalable business where you where you're using a technology and idea that you believe can't scale. How would you, how would you advise a, uh, a founder coming up? Yeah. So for me, I think the way that I typically give advice on this one is, you can de-risk two things. You can either de-risk yourself or de-risk the business when it comes down to just generally raising capital in general. 
Um, if you don't come from that background, I really recommend trying to de-risk yourself as much as possible because the metrics will always move. Um, that's kind what do of you mean by de-risk yourself? Uh, the way about de-risking yourself is uh, one thing that I've seen a lot of people do is uh, showcase their knowledge in the most um, natural way that it is to them. So if you're someone who can write long form, write long form. If you're someone that can write short form, get on Twitter. If you're more uh, audio in focus, create a podcast, things of that nature. Show people, showcasing your genius will de-risk you because, hey, maybe you didn't go to that school or maybe you didn't go to that company. I love that. That's a bar. Showcasing your genius will de-risk you. Yeah. That's good. Go ahead. So that's kind of the thing that I've that I've seen work for a bunch of folks who are like outside of the ecosystem is like, hey, you might not have the company markers or the education markers that are typically VC backed. But if you put your ideas out enough to the world in a in the key thing here is in a format that you can consistently do. You can't yeah. just do it like one or two times. You have to really put the reps in. So then eventually people are listening, reading or watching. And then you're like, OK, like. This this guy or girl knows exactly what they're talking about. And then they stop even really caring about like where this person went to school or what company they worked at. They know that, oh, this person could have gone this or done this, but they're choose they may have, you know, circumstances or where have you. But that's the way that I've seen people de-risk themselves quite a bit is mm -hmm. via the the content lens. If you don't want to do that, then I would recommend. Uh, on the work side, which is another practical one, is to just look to work at a company that you believe will get acquired or go public. Um, yeah. That's a more uh, nuanced one because you want to then look at the job opportunity as an investment opportunity. Like, okay, if you want to, like I worked at a company called Burner um, uh, some years ago with second phone number for any use case. Uh, yeah. And my thinking walking in there when I was leading product there was that I was like, okay, this company could potentially get bought by a telco or one of the like domain sites like Squarespace or GoDaddy to power another lever lever of communication when someone's creating a business. Right. So that was the way that I was looking at that. And I think if people started looking at the world of startups, not from the lens of like, okay, what are they going to pay me and what's my equity, but more so, do you really see this company working out in the future? If you do, then great. If you don't, and it's just getting your foot in the door, also great. But the way you really are going to be to risk yourself in this industry, outside of the education thing and outside of working at like a large big tech company, is really figuring out what company do you think could get acquired? Even if it doesn't get acquired for a lot of cash, being a someone who worked at a place that did exit gives you a certain level of social capital in the ecosystem. Right. So how do you go about making that? You've had that experience, clearly. How do you go about making that uh, that evaluation? So the de-risking yourself, you've talked about that in terms of essentially uh, leveraging your genius, which I feel like you should do universally anyway. Uh, but how do you evaluate a company that you think can actually have the potential to, uh, you know, to to actually have an exit? Yeah, I mean, for me, if I was someone who was still like working as an operator, I'd personally be looking at companies, this is my own personal thing, any company that I see that is being built upon a current policy change, um, I think has a lot of a, a lot of potential. Like one of them I think is gonna be big. And if people see it, please jump on it because I think it might be a thing. Um, there's a lot of decriminalization and legalization around psychedelics. 
Um, So I do see a world where there's marketplaces and consumer brands built around psychedelics, similar like the marketplaces that you might see from marijuana with like these weed maps, things of that nature. We had Jewel out here with the with the tobacco. Unfortunately, that was a that was a different thing. Fascinating. Psychedelics, huh? I mean, yeah. So they already did it in Oregon. They're putting a bill up here in California. So it's like, where do you think the puck is going around policy? Because I think the biggest companies in the future are going to be able to see all these policy changes, whether it's relaxing or adding new ones. And a lot of technology creation and opportunity and financial opportunity we built upon those. So for me, that's fascinating. for, For most people, I think think of like where what do you what are you seeing and where do you think the puck is going and see if you can find companies that are building around where you think the puck is going uh, i mean i i've heard that analogy actually i had someone on my show talked about see where the puck is going and uh but i didn't hear it which is interesting around policy which is a fascinating way to kind of think about it right in terms of where you think policy is going and and then because that's that is very very important because that does make that does make or break and it makes often uh, industries and opportunities, um, which is interesting, right? I actually, that's, I, I didn't think about it from that perspective and uh, psychedelics. There's uh, I didn't think about it from that. There's obviously still weed and how, uh, and how drinks are going to be done within weed. Like I, I had someone on my show that actually had, where you can, you know, essentially get high off a drink without, without getting a hangover by uh. using like marijuana, which is fascinating. Right. And the guy, I have to look up the, I forgot his name right now, but he had a, um, his product, does that and he's in California and a couple other places, but it, you don't get the hangover and and you and and you and you can use weed. You don't have any of the other health side effects, uh, but you still get that kind of feeling of that high that people kind of want to have. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Like I never thought about like I I never thought about it from the policy point of view in terms of the opportunities and looking at it that way. It's a very unique way of looking at it. It's actually part of the reason why I'm in this strange world that I know you've had, you've been a critic of, and I want to talk to you a little bit about it, like Web three. Yeah. Like what's your and you you're a, as a product person, I can understand why you have it because we're they're they're horrible at product design. Um, <laughs> but do you see what do you see there? If you if you don't have any thoughts on it, you don't have to. But in terms of like a policy opportunity, in terms of that, when it comes to the the inherent blockchain technology, not not, not I think obviously trading NFTs as anything <laughs> uh, that that is dead. Um, but in terms of actually actually using the ledger and blockchain as a policy. Do you see opportunity there? And if not, you know, we can we can speak to. Yeah, I'm I'm not like, you know, I'm as you know, I'm not super deep in the world of of Web3 and crypto. But what I've gotten from uh, at least blockchain and the whole like, you know, saving things on chain and all that kind of stuff. From what I've gotten from my own outside looking in thing, it seems like there's uh, epic applications around uh, HIPAA compliance in um, the world of, of of health when it comes down to data records, data storage, and um, uh, leveraging that data over time um, and knowing that this data is the right data, things of that nature. So I've heard that there's going to be a bunch of applications in the world of health. Yes. Um, that's, what I, that's what I've heard, um, but I haven't heard anything outside of that. As you know, I'm not as deep. No, you're not as deep, so we don't have to spend a lot of time there. I would like to talk about your your your... Uh, your your feelings about engineering versus product and design. Um, if you were advising a founder, would you advise them to be better at, at coding or better at design? I think I know the answer, but I'd like to hear why. Definitely design. Okay, why? Definitely design because you'll be able to showcase exactly what you're thinking um, to people, um, and you wouldn't might might you wouldn't have to pay for a designer. So that's also a thing. It's a money saving thing too. But yeah. 
Um, me, I don't have the deepest design background. Like I just do wireframes via via Figma, um, and then I uh, illustrate. I make it uh, a clickable prototype via uh, Marvel. But yeah, I think we, you know, you've seen people like, oh, should people learn how to code? Learn how to code? Learn how to code? I'm like, okay, but if you can't show people what you're actually trying to build, whether it can work or not, you can get you can get so much more across to people when they can see the thing versus when you're abstractly talking about the thing. Yes. Um, so I think I I hope that more folks are. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to be the greatest designer in the world. You just have to be able to show people what you're talking about. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So we talk about startups. What would you say is startups? What are the what's the most normal reason for failure? Because one of the things we're going to talk about is people talk about all their reasons for success. But again, a lot of it has to do with timing, their networks. But let's talk about failure. What do you think is the top reason for failure? Uh, believing that the market is bigger than it is because you uh, sold it to some of your friends and some of their companies and some of their buddies. Because, uh, you know, a lot of our stuff, you know, that's a, that was both, a Web3 problem. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that. like that's a, that's the thing that I've seen a lot, like especially on the coast. People think because people bought up your thing in California or bought up your thing in New York, that the same thing will happen in the state of Michigan uh, or the same thing will happen in uh, across the country. Um, and tastes and preferences and how people like to do things and also the work that they do and the style of work. So many things. Um People think the market is bigger because the people who are like them like it. But how many people like you are in the in the in the U.S. and then the globe? One that comes to mind for me all the time on the when it comes down to consumer facing software is those who are looking to build uh, companies around people that like move all the time or traveling on flights all the time. I'm like, how many flights do you think the average American takes? And the average American only lives roughly 15, 12 to 15 miles away from the city when which their mother was, when which they were born. So building for, um, building for trends that are very insular to the group you identify with end up being the worst consumer businesses that I've seen. Oh, which is very hard though, right? Because it's like, so how do you get yourself from being in the bubble from being external? Like, is there any habits or things that you one can do to go beyond to, cause I actually think you can, you can, you can take your product that look, that is uh, internal facing and figure out a way to lose the solution that is actually more uh, consumer facing and friendly if you get out of the bubble and figure out how to focus. But I, I found being, doing that simple thing is very hard, right? Cause people yeah, say, yeah. so how, what do you as a, as a, a person experienced in product, what do you recommend are some uh, institutional habits that a founder or an organization can take to prevent uh, them from seeing the consumer bubble? The first thing is knowing what bubble you're in. Like really, I really being real with the kind of bubble that you're in. Like me, I live in LA before here, I lived in DC. Um, and also knowing that the people that I come across are folks who are VC backed founders, operators at big techs, VCs, all that kind of stuff. And realizing how small of a portion yes. of the work of the even the white collar workforce that even is. Yeah. Um, so like knowing first being aware of the bubble you're in and then seeking out <clears throat> seeking out perspectives outside of the bubble that you're in. So for myself, I listen to this American life quite often. Um, they yeah. talk about things that do are not um attributed to like 
tech ecosystem and VC back this and all that kind of stuff. I also like to listen to business podcasts that are not from the lens of software. Like I listened to uh, one about pet food earlier today. Okay. Um, so I was just, I was listening to that. It was like this fresh pet, fresh pet food company that was like born in 06 and it's still around now in 2023. So for me, it's like knowing your knowing the bubble you're in, finding whether it's podcasts. I find content consumption that is via podcasts or books the easiest way to open my mind. That's the way that mm. I always did it when I was a kid. Um, is the is able to do that. And then also leveraging the internet in the way of knowing that, knowing the kind of people you usually follow or usually listen to and being willing to follow or listen to someone that is not a carbon copy of the people that you typically come around. So that's, I think those are the, those are the three things that I've done, which helped me like reach outside of the bubble that we're in. Cause as you know, it's super easy for us in our ecosystem to stay in our bubble and not feel a need to be outside our bubble. And if our bubble rocks with it, then everybody should. But then you realize exactly. just how small your bubble actually is. No, it's been a problem. I, I saw that problem when I was in policy and politics, when I ran, I mean, particularly, you know, those who are in uh, office is particularly, I can just say this more on the democratic side, because uh, I think the Republicans tend to do this better. Uh, that's not a, that's not necessarily a compliment, but they tend to do it better <laughs> in terms of being able to communicate a simple message. Yeah, it is a compliment because they're able to get shit done they in are. terms of understanding what their people are saying. And I've found that a lot of Democratic legislators, uh, you know, they make it very complicated. And so one of my favorite books with product design you've probably read is Insanely Simple. Have you read that book? I have not read that, but I've heard it's a good one. It's a great one. But there's a simple there's a line in there. He said, like, you know, it's a uh, simplicity is an all or nothing proposition, either everything is simple or everything is complicated. And the reason why is challenge. It is challenging, actually, to keep making things simple because you have yes. to, you have to keep coming back to that. Like, I've, simplicity I've is hard. That. It's really hard. Because <laughs> like, I'm trying to do it every day in my business. And I'm like, it's it's very, very difficult. Right. And. And, and and I think, you know, so legislators get into the mode where they 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 think that everybody thinks around them like like they understand that like they think people understand what they're saying. And most of the time they're just speaking in Chinese to people exactly. like they have, they're not living this life that you're living. They have no idea what the hell you're talking about. You have to break it down at a simple like seventh grade level that people can understand and repeat it 10,000 times. Exactly. <laughs> like that's, the only, that's the only way you get it. But I found business is the same way. And I think some of that has kind of helped me. That it goes back to your point of uh, de- uh, de-risking yourself and you repeat a message over and over again. It's, it's, it's knowing like where your genius is, finding that, making it simple and just repeating it over and over and over yes. again. Right. And that's the but that is the that is the hard part to do. So uh, I, I agree. Um, all right. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about investing. Then I have a couple of roundup questions. Let's do it. So investing, what's the most important thing you look for? when you invest in a business? The most important thing I look for is exposure to the problem space that you're building in. Now, this doesn't have to come from a traditional job. It does not have to come from an educational experience, but it can come from one of those two. Uh, or could it came, hey, you're around this kind of thing growing up. You know, right. you you helped out your, your, your uncle, your aunt, your mom, uh, your brother, your sister was something. It's just like, where did you get the exposure to the problem space? I don't want the exposure to the problem space come from something that you read online. That's yeah. just something that I think a lot of people tend to do. Um, right. It's like, I like lived experience with it. 
if you haven't had lived experience with it, then I'm less so um, gung ho for the solution that you came up with because you never lived it. Um, right. So if you've lived it, then you have a you have you'll more than likely have a unique insight that cannot be found from just reading uh, a blog post or a book or read or listening to um, uh, a podcast about the problems in the world. It, it's great when you've experienced some of the problems in the world, whether it's like um, you you've seen them, you volunteered in them. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Like, what problem did you have? To, what exposure did you have to the problem space? Whether it's academic, an actual job, or uh, growing up or volunteering. There's a lot of ways to expose yourself to problem spaces that are not typically, oh, this is my nine to five job. Got it. No, it makes total sense. Makes sense. So, all right, couple of, what do what do founders get most wrong most often, you think? Um, that VC back founders? Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, founders in general, people who are building things in general, um, Believing that um, capital raised or like, no, I'm not even going to go the capital route because I want this to be more applicable than just people who raise money. Um, believing, believing too much in the solution and less so in the problem that they're solving. I think a lot of people, woo, you would not have, you, you've probably seen it many a time as well. It's happened to myself. Yes. How, how tied we can get to the solution that we came up with versus being like, Okay, yeah, this solution might not work, but I'm more married to making sure that the problem gets solved versus the solution I came with is this is the solution that solves the problem. So you got to get tied. You have to get very married to the problem that you're looking to reduce versus the solution that you came up with. And I think it's hard for us to do that because it's like, okay, I launched my first thing. Um we we were seeing some traction. I feel like this should work. I feel like this should work because people wrap too much of their identities into the yes. uh, into the companies that they they build. wrap too much of their identities into the company. I think that's the problem, right? So you can't make an. You, it's hard to make objective decisions when you feel like the decisions you're making are making decisions about your own identity. Yeah, and and I've I, I've had a a wake up call with my identity because you you shouldn't tie your identity to actually even what you do. Yep. To tie your identity to the values you have. Yes. And those agree. that'll make your life a lot easier. And I didn't realize that. And I think when people realize that it makes it easier to move off of an idea or a career path or when the athlete has to retire, they realize like my identity isn't this. Yes. That's not who I am. Exactly. I definitely agree with that. So that's kind of how I look at it. All right. So uh, how about investors? What's the most important? What, what, what do investors get wrong most often? Um, believing that if they are not the customer for the product, then there's no customer for the product. Mm. A lot of them do that. A lot of folks are like, oh, if I wouldn't use it or my friends wouldn't use it, my partner wouldn't use it, my kids might not use it, then there's like not a market for it. But that comes back to the insularity of people's networks, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing that investors get wrong is like, oh, if I wouldn't buy it, then who would buy it? Uh, right. Someone that's not you because everyone is not you, John. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which is why you need more equity and, and investment, which more things would happen. But we have a dominant perspective that comes from a closed network. It's not only a people only think white male, they think that that's part of it. Yeah. But it's also a closed system in terms of where they went to school, who their yep. network is. So it becomes a very like a very really a, a narrow view of what innovation can look like when we're serving a very diverse population in this world, more diverse than we ever have. And there's so many underserved markets, I believe, because of that. Oh, 100%. I definitely agree with you. 
Yep. Okay. All right. A little bit talk about your career a little bit. So uh, uh, the the name of your company is Stealth Startup, and I read something about it. it it's the it's like the intersection of like a uh, software and remote yeah. So I can, work. I can what, I can what, give is, you what a, does that mean? So the the company um, we haven't released this publicly, so I'll just still talk about it in the abstract. I would just okay. Oh, okay. Where it is. Uh, so the, the company is not really called Stealth Stutter. We're just working in stealth. So the, the core of what we're looking to do um, is looking to reduce the labor shortage that we see in the trades. Uh, think HVAC, plumbing, electrician, uh, clean energy, things of that nature. That's where I have to stop at, though, uh, okay. on like what we're doing. But we will be people will learn more about it at the end of next month when we're actually live. OK. All right. That'll be very interesting because there is a. And, you know, there's some I know people in unions that would that have a lot of apprenticeship programs that probably be interested in working with you on that, too, once you if, if you get that up. So because it's, uh, you know, they have a lot of uh, labor shortages across the board, period. So that that's a very interesting. OK. All right. So, OK, let's um, let's talk about some things that you might have gone through, like personally. So can you think of a time that you failed and how you grew from that? It can be in business. It can be personal. Yeah, the time that I failed, um, I would say. When I was trying to, when I first graduated from USC, so I went to grad school at USC. When I first went to grad school at USC, um, I was recruiting for full-time product jobs. And yeah. most of the opportunity, unfortunately, was in SF. I did not want to move to SF. Um, so I was really trying hard to get a, pro- a full-time product job out here in LA. What ended up happening is that, unfortunately, that didn't happen. So I ended up having to take a product management internship uh, post-grad, making $12 an hour. Um, out here in in LA. Imagine $12 an hour for four and a half months straight. In in LA, that's poverty on top of poverty. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. So that is, that was one of the times where I was like, you're eating ramen noodles every night. Was it was like, was being too idealistic about what I wanted my next steps to be putting me in situations I did not want to be in at that time. Yes, it did. It definitely did that. But, um, I learned from that and I learned what I did learn from that is that while the while the steps may have to change, even in ways you don't want them to, you can still hold the same angle. Like I could I could still went to San Francisco and then moved back down to L.A. at some point. But I think I had a certain level of idealism about what my next step should be. Um, which ended up me not, you know, not securing a full time product job out here for the first four and a half months when I graduated. Um, and taking that internship for twelve dollars an hour, so um, that's that was a lesson learned in a lot of ways. Oh, okay, great. All right. Um, how about this? What is a you have a committee of three to advise you on life or business? Who are these three people and why? Um, I would say for 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 my for my personal life, I would say my partner. Um, she gives me a lot of. Uh, she's a good sounding board. Um, in the, in that way, um, I would say my other two that I go to will be like my dad for sure, because he's worked in, worked in business in a variety of ways. And also, you know, he came here when he was 18. So he has a lot of experience about just like life in general. Um, and then my last one, I want to use someone outside of that one person that I really do, uh, admire their counsel and the way that they've helped me navigate is Charles Hudson. Okay. Um, from Precursor VC. 
Um, he was one of our uh, backers. He was one of our larger backers in our la- in my last company. And he okay. doesn't only give great advice about how to navigate the the VC ecosystem that we're in, but he also gives good life advice from a lens of a life lived. Um, so that's that's the last person I would say. Like if I had to go to folks and like bring them all, if I brought them three together, one of them would be able to help navigate um the 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 situation that i'm thinking about so those are my three okay you um speaking of that you 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 had a quote you mentioned on twitter that you find it strange that people believe that you can ever be the same after you lose a parent yes um i'm assuming this has happened to you um so what changes in a person do you think i guess it's all personal like what changes and what what is it that you reflect on in terms of changing as a person that changes you fundamentally? I think uh, losing the person, losing someone that knew you more than anybody else is a very um, transformative experience in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, I have friends as well as myself who have lost like mothers and fathers and things of that nature. Um, I think that people don't really know who they are until they've gone through grief because grief, Mm. because Grief is a sadness that you walk with all the time. Mm. Um, so that's kind of what what it is. Um, in the ways that I've changed, you know, I don't... It's a sadness that you walk with all the time. Tell me about that. What, um, it's something like, you know, it's on you and you don't ever know when it's going to pop up. So that's mm. the thing about grief for those who may have never experienced it. Um, you never know when it's going to pop up and when it's going to hit you. It's not always like a oh, you're breaking down, crying kind of thing, but it can disrupt some of the nicer moments uh, when it does, because then your mind trails off to uh, to that. So for me, like, I don't know uh, fully how how I'll change. Um, it'll be a year next month. Yeah. Um, so Sorry I think the first loss. year is the hardest. Thank you. Um, the first year is the hardest, but from what I've heard from folks, as time goes on, things get easier. But I think- It never think goes away. Yeah. I, I haven't lost my, thank God, I haven't lost my parents. Unfortunately, yet it's a cycle of life that you prefer to lose your parents than your parents lose you. Cause that's, yep. I can, I can tell you, I've seen that because my sister died. And so you see, I see what, obviously I go through my pain too for that, but my parents, it's an unimaginable level of grief that they've gone through. Yeah. So it's a, I think the thing that changes the most, at least for me in the last year has um, really makes you reevaluate um, what what kind of connections you really want in your life. Like, you know, we all have these like some like loose ties. You got friends, best friends, whatever. It really makes you real like think about like, you know, if if I if you were to pass earlier than you expected, are you spending time with the people that you truly want mm. to or are you doing it out of obligation? And I think one thing that I definitely have uh, made myself really um, not want to do it. I didn't want to do it previous, but I really don't want to do it now is spending time with people out of obligation and also those who don't pour into you versus just take out of you. And you realize that when you, because you lose the person that would always pour into you and you, you miss that. And when you don't have that, you know, you got to find the deficit somewhere and the deficit really comes, you got to fill that deficit somewhere. And the best way to do that is continue to surround yourself with people who pour into you versus those who uh, don't. Because, you know, when a parent passes, you could get 
off your frustrations about people not pouring into you and to them, and then they'll pour into you when they're feeling you're frustrated. You no longer have that. Um, so you then really, really prioritize those who pour in because wow. you've lost someone who did a lot of it. No, that was deep. I uh, appreciate that. Wow. All right. Final question. Uh, this is not an easy one. Uh, it, uh, what's an important truth you have that very few people agree with you on? A lot of my tweets. <laughs> <laughs> you can choose one. You know, uh, I, I probably have one that you're thinking about. I just thought about it. I just thought about one of the things that you just that you say a lot. Which one? Give, let me let me know. Let me know which one. What so the one I was the one I was thinking about was how people how men really underestimate the importance of uh, who they end up marrying in terms of their career. Yes. See, I always get pushed back on that from See, men that, and I women. I figured that was one. So I go get ahead. pushed back <laughs> on that from men and women because I do think men, especially upwardly mobile men, and you know, you're you're really trying to have a good life, have a good quality of life. I think who men choose to partner with, they should up the bar. Um, because when you look at it, it's like a lot of men's lives get all disheveled and torn all about and all that kind of stuff because they chose a partner off of purely sometimes either physical attraction or convenience um or they like oh they cook they clean they do the domestic stuff but like those things are great but is this the same person who can help build the life that you're looking to build and every every woman is not equipped for that like i the the tweet exactly that same tweet was that like i was like Men who are upperly mobile and educated should not partner with women who are financially insecure and non-ambitious because it will be a more of a liability to your life than an asset. But the reason I get pushed back on that is because I do believe inherently there are men and women who believe that women inherently are a value add to a man's life no matter what. I fundamentally do not believe that. Um, that's something that I've never truly believed, even though people want you to believe it. I like, it depends on the type of woman. It's not any woman. It's the type of woman. And that type of woman is not a blanket type of woman. It's like the type of woman that is best for you. And that's the thing that I was really pushing on for folks, but people tend to push back on that because they believe that it's like devaluing the value of a woman. It's not really doing that. It's more saying, what type of woman do you really value and making sure that you look at it from that long-term game versus the short-term thing? Because you go scratch the itch, you go like, okay, cool. We was, I was with her for a little bit. It's fine. It's cool. But then you, you'll see uh, all these other brothers with sisters that you really like, oh, that would be, that would be the move. That would be the move. But that's kind of the, that's the main one I've gotten pushed back over the years is because people believe that uh, obviously there's this, you know, uh, imbalanced men, women thing. But it's like, for me, I'm like, men definitely should choose better because too many men's lives get derailed from not doing that. Yep. Yep. That's definitely controversial, but Hey, we're all about disruption. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, Look, I appreciate you coming on, Josh. It was great to have you on. It's going to be a great show. Uh, definitely look forward to keeping us, keep us in touch as your new uh, venture uh, you know, comes about. Definitely, we'll we'll make sure we share with the ecosystem. Really appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, of course. 